Ethereum is the second biggest thing in crypto, and it may one day flip Bitcoin in market cap. But the big news around Vitalik's creation is the upcoming switch from proof of work to proof of stake, and they're calling it the merge. We have questions and concerns about this major change in how the Ethereum chain will operate. So today we welcome Matt Cutler of Block Native to the show to answer all of our questions about the Ethereum merge. Someone call 911 because it's an ETH emergency on episode number 630 of the Bad Crypto Podcast. Five, four, Just kidding. Put down the phone. Don't call 911. Somebody's like, doot, doot, doot. hello, this is 911. What's your emergency? No, no, it's an eighth emergency. The guy said to call. There's a problem. <laughs> I almost busted out laughing over there, but then I realized I wasn't muted. And so I literally internalized my laughter, but I held it in because it was funny, but it wasn't that funny. I had to do the math on how funny it was. It wasn't funny enough to burst out the air and make you have to edit. That's that burst of air you just made that sound like a fart. That was, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm good with mouths and farts. Have you ever but laughed? I would like ETH emergency. That is really, it's an ETH merge. It is an ETH merge. I see what you did now. So it wasn't just an ETH emergency, it was an ETH merge in C. Oh man, that yeah. was even more better now. So that now it's funnier. Now, if you're going to go now back, that's even funnier. Hold on. <laughs> there we go. You can edit that in back earlier. You know what's really funny is when you laugh and fart at the same time. You, you I know, don't know you, that I could do that. Oh, you, that you've possible. done it. You've done it. You just forgot that you did Wait, it. No, no, no. I have sneezed and farted. Oh, that's good, too. <laughs> it that... was weird. I was like, whoa, that's like, that's, those are rare. If you can fart and sneeze at the same time, because you push it, you know, you're pushing it out at the same time, which is different. <laughs> is that called a snart? <laughs> laugh and fart. My mom has laughed and farted at the same time. I know that. I can assure you of that. Would a sneeze fart be a snart? Is that? It's way better than a shart. I do know that because I have had those. You never trust not... a fart when you're near fifty. You know what? You can snart and shart all at the same time. That that's like. Did we start? Let's let's start. Welcome to the Bad Crypto Podcast. The name is uh, it's baked in to the name, gang. So uh, hope that you've had some laughs and maybe you laugh farted here at the beginning of the show. A serious business, though, with the Ethereum merge coming up. I've read some uh, very optimistic tweets. I've read some very pessimistic tweets. I've read some tweets that are just mystic. They're kind of like spiritual right in the middle about what this whole ethereum merge means i've read a lot of tweets that pertain to none of these topics but that doesn't matter that's i've been on twitter since 2007 so it's like that's a long time you're an old man i'm actually a bot i don't know if you knew this beep boop the trav bot 3000 you know i, I was actually thinking about that it's like you know the people like like the, i saw this thing about t- uh, twitter security people and i think you said it as well and they and they said that wow they don't actually know how many bots they have, but I was thinking you don't even know how many accounts I have because like any time there was like a hilarious moment to like jump on something and just be part of the conversation I would like Amy's Baking Company like I don't know if you remember that that was like mm-hmm. a TV show like Nightmare Kitchens thing yep. with Gordon Ramsay uh-huh. and she like had this cat and. And she was just really bitchy and like all of her, all of her staff hated her uh-huh. and her husband was an asshole. Allegedly, I'm not, I'm not making claims on anything, but I did make a fake Twitter handle. They literally didn't have Amy's Baking Co. Twitter handle. And that was the name of the business. And so I was acting like I was Amy right when that show came out. <laughs> and it was so funny. People got so angry at me and I was just acting like saying quotes that she had said from like TV and oh my god, it was the funniest shit ever. I making funny Twitter accounts that aren't, you know, banned or throttled is fun. <laughs> well, there you go. Now we know who the bots are. It's Sir Lord Travis. It's probably it's probably people behind the scenes behind the bots. And you know that's true because the bot is owned by someone. But I bet I probably over the years 
have just different accounts and different emails probably have 20 different email, 20 different Twitters, if not 25, but a lot of them are probably dead. So who even knows how many, that's one dude. Oh, well, and you know, I'm totally shadow banned. I've got over 620,000 followers on my primary account gets like five engagements. Uh, no, you're not shadow banned. And if you go look up on Twitter, you know, the fake Twitter site that checks for bots and fake accounts, it's like 99% real. So if my accounts that are following me are 99% real and I'm only getting a few engagements, you could say, well, either you don't know how to tweet, you really suck at Twitter, and even people who suck at Twitter you know, get engagement, or you're being shadow banned, and I'm totally being Well, also, it's like, you know, depending on when you set up your account, you probably have a lot of old accounts. And then also, depending on the analysis that you do, it's like I've looked at one where it said, yeah, you're 99% good. But then it only like does a sampling of like the last, you know, couple thousand that you have on there. And then some of them will go in and dive and do a deep dive into all of them. And I know that since I've been on since 2007, a vast, I would say a big chunk are probably dead that aren't even active accounts anymore from 2007. I mean, shit, I was on there. 15, I'm on 15 years. I know you're about at least 15 years too, probably. Um, my oh, Twitter anniversary is May 17th, 2007. Okay. So you just had your 15th in May. Mine was in August, uh, in yeah. April, like yeah. April. I went to web two, the web two expo in San Francisco talking all about web two is I had the very early days of web two. It was literally right. Not too, too long after, uh, Google had acquired YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember watching, and this was a moment, going to the Web2 Expo was really a moment in my life because I was I was at a, a tech institute in Kansas City where I was a teacher. So I was teaching uh, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and I was teaching all the Adobe stuff, including Adobe Flash and all that, ActionScript and stuff. I was teaching all that. And then I went to the Web2 conference as my one conference that I wanted to choose. And I, meet, I met all these people and I was like, dude, these people are me. Like I could do what these guys are doing. Like this is my, these are my people, right? And now, Joel, we are in the Web three gang. Like this Web three mm-hmm. people are my people because Web two people are not my people. And I just love Ethereum. I I, I think I'm done with the Web three people, though. I'm going to hang out with the Web four people. Well, that's a pretty good idea. I'm hanging out with still the Web three point seven five people because we're because we're futurists. So we're not actually here to talk about Twitter today. We're here to talk about the Ethereum merge, and we don't know if he's a bot or not. That that would actually be a fun game to play, bot or not. Can you guess? Remember, hot or not? Right. It'd be bot, bot or not? not. Bot Mary seven four three eight two G nine four. Wonder what she is. But or not, uh, Matt's got a lot to say answering our questions about the Ethereum merge. Let's merge into our interview. Matt Cutler is the CEO and co-founder of Block Native, a real-time infrastructure for monitoring pre-chan. Pre-chan is that like pre-chain. before 4chan? There was pre-chan, pre-chain data optimizing gas spend and predicting transaction settlement. He's founded multiple technology startups, and he is here with us today to talk about all things Ethereum and the upcoming Ethereum merge, because he claims to be able to say words about that. Matt, welcome to the Bad Crypto Podcast. Uh, Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here. I I do think there should be a pre-chan, like before the internet got full of trolls it was pre-chan i think we're now in post-chan yeah we are we're or all chan as as probably a better articulation but i was actually building internet infrastructure way back in 1994 so i remember the pre-chan days uh quite vividly in fact the genesis of trolls way back then before and of course there were some they were on you know bbs's right or you'd have to go into compuserve or prodigy or you know america online before it was aol and you would find the trolls were there but they found their way to the internets then usenet usenet is where they oh It'd be funny if there's like a, a troll, you know, today it's like, yeah, my, my dad was a troll on Usenet. <laughs> it's generational. So uh, Matt, uh, go ahead and, and pimp block native just a little bit here before we jump into the, uh, the meat of the conversation. Tell us what you're all about. 
Sure. So uh, Block Native provides real-time infrastructure for Web3 focused on what we call the pre-chain pre layer. So everything that happens to a transaction between the moment that it is conceived of, hey, I should transact, and the moment it goes on chain. And uh, so typically in the world of Ethereum, this is known as the mempool, but there's stuff that happens before and arguably a little stuff that happens after. And in other chains, there's other infrastructure there too. But it turns out that a whole bunch of really important things are occurring while uh, transactions are in flight. And it's quite difficult to get access to this data and quite difficult to make sense of this data because all the rules of the of on-chain data are sort of the inverse and opposite and pre-chain data. And so we build specialized global infrastructure to capture, normalize, and enrich this data and make it accessible to basically all participants of the networks that we participate in. And, and we're super lucky to work with many of the top projects and, and organizations out there. So we work with the Ethereum Foundation, we work with Polygon, we work with Phantom, we work with MetaMask, we work with uh, many of the top DeFi protocols that are out there. You've seen our libraries in, in production in many, many places. And we've been at it for four plus years now. And uh, we're super excited about, you know, everything that's happened over that time and and very excited about what's coming, you know, in, in just a few short weeks with the merge. That's great. So when, when actually did you get online with, with, uh, with crypto and blockchain? If you're blockchain native, like blockchain native should have gotten on real early. Yeah, I, I I was very aware of Bitcoin in the early days and uh, much to my own regret did not get involved. So mm -hmm. I was sort of on the sidelines via Reddit. And uh, the truth is, is my last startup, I, I was acquired by Cisco. So me and my family moved from the East Coast out here to California. And I was busy doing Cisco stuff when all of that was happening. And I was trying to focus on that. And I had a friend who's now on our board of advisors who was saying, Matt, there's some really interesting things happen. You should pay attention. And I was like, I'm busy. They'd come back six months later and say, there's some really interesting things happening. You should, come, you know, you should pay attention. And it was about three or four of those visits from him. And about 2017, I started to tune in and, and did so. His advice, which I've, I've given many times is, you need to get started. You're going to buy some Ethereum and Bitcoin. You're going to put as much money in as you're going to pay attention to, but not so much money that if you lose it all, you'll be pissed off in any way, right? And that's exactly what I did. And I'm pretty sure that was Thanksgiving 2017. And I very quickly started to fall down the rabbit hole. And my reaction was, oh, I've seen this movie before. It feels exactly like the formative stages of the internet. So uh, I was an undergrad at MIT in the 90s. And uh, we actually, we didn't know it at the time, but we had super advanced access to high-speed internet connection through the on-campus network. And we later learned while we were at MIT that, that that was not something everybody had, but it seemed pretty obvious that it was the future. And I did an internet startup in 1994 while I was still an undergrad. And, and if you were in the internet at the time, it seemed really obvious what the future would hold. I mean, that was the future, it was clear. But if you were outside the internet, it seemed like this toy, this junk, it was full of garbage, it was slow, it was hard, it was very you know, difficult to navigate. Normal people couldn't figure out how to do all the necessary things. There's all this jargon and scam. Doesn't it sound a lot like crypto? Okay, so crypto in 2017 had many of these same characteristics. But once I got inside, I was like, oh, oh, this is clearly the future. It seems really obvious that this is the way things are going to go. And in the 90s, I was a part of the whole world going from being offline to being online. And now I feel like we're in the middle of the whole world going from being off-chain to on-chain. And so uh, I realized it was super unlikely that I would be an operator in the early days of the internet and still be an operator in the early days of Web3. And I would never forgive myself if I didn't take another bite at that apple. I felt like I made a lot of mistakes in the Web 1.0 era and I wanted to make all new mistakes in the Web3 era. And so I left a corporate job at Cisco and, and jumped in both feet with Block Native and it's been a wild ride ever since. Wow. And and there you are. And, uh, you know, you're talking to a couple guys who have also been there since the uh, the beginning and the words um, that you said of uh, I've seen this, you know, movie before I've, I've uttered them multiple times. And it's just really hard when you're watching the ups and downs in the middle of it. But, you know, long term, this is where we're going. Uh, but there are definitely some questions around this uh, this Ethereum merge that's taking place. And before we get to what's actually happening, why don't we talk about what's broken with Ethereum that we even need to go from, you know, proof of work to proof of stake? 
So, you know, I wouldn't say so much that things are broken. I would say that there are fundamental limitations of the system as it's currently architected uh, as we look ahead to the future. And so I, I talk with my team, look, we're building the next economy. You know, there's no question about that. And, and that means that what we're doing today in the Petri dish is going to need to scale up to industrial strength. And, and if we look at sort of where we are today with things like scalability, um, you know, we're, we're processing on Ethereum on the order of 13 to 14 transactions per second, which let's be honest, is insufficient to power the next economy. We need massively more scalability. Wait, wait, wait. That's all the transactions there are right now, 13 to 14 transactions per second on Ethereum. Yeah. Yeah, which some of these places are touting, we can do 300,000 transactions a second. Yeah, well, if Ethereum's only doing 13 or 14 transactions a second, that's not quite needed yet. So, so interestingly, so uh, th there, there is this problem, which is you can crank up the transactions per second as long as you crank up the computational requirements of the nodes necessary to operate it. And so the whole challenge is the current system scales effectively linearly with hardware power that you devote to it. So many of these chains today that say, oh, we, we provide superior scalability, they have 20 computers on the planet that are located in large data centers that cost uh, significant money every month to operate. And therefore they're highly centralized. Right, that, that there's just a small number of actors that dictate uh, what happens and doesn't happen on the chain. And by the way, who has visibility and who doesn't into the pre-chain layer, which is who can see the future and who can't. And so Ethereum has been very clear where they're pursuing a technologically aggressive roadmap, including technologically aggressive scalability without sacrificing decentralization. And so this is this fundamental tension is it's super easy, not super easy, but the trade-offs are pretty easy. Everybody sacrifices decentralization because it's an abstract benefit in return for lower transaction fees in return for higher throughput and scalability. And so uh, in order to get there, in order to get to a future state with massively greater throughput and scalability without significantly sacrificing decentralization, uh, Ethereum uh, determined that the best path forward would be to transition from proof of work to proof of stake and, and to set the foundation for that to happen. Um, there's all sorts of very interesting uh, consequences of the merge and the transition from proof of work to proof of stake. And in particular, massive reduction in externalities outside of the system. So in a proof of work system, them, you need to operate computers to solve problems on the network. Well, those computers are expensive, and so you need dollars to buy those computers. You don't need Bitcoin or Ethereum. You got to convert your Bitcoin or Ethereum or pick your favorite cryptocurrency into dollars so you can afford the computers. So right away, you're taking a native currency and you're converting it to a fiat currency to afford a core material, a core asset to operate that. And then furthermore, to operate those computers, to solve those problems, everybody knows, requires a whole lot of energy. By the way, that energy is denominated in fiat currency. So yet again, to secure the network, you're forced to convert the core asset into another currency in order to operate the network. These are externalities, which are sort of a fact of life under proof of work. Under proof of stake, you eliminate many of those externalities. And so in many ways, you, you have a lot less dependency on outside factors and it's much more self-referential. Therefore, it's more efficient. Uh, therefore, because it's more efficient, you can have a lower rate of issuance. So you don't need to incent everyone in quite the same way for each new block. And so there's a whole bunch of benefits that come from proof of stake, but it's a game theoretic model, not a crypto cryptographic model. And there are many people who feel very strongly about the pros and cons of each one of these. Um, the honest truth is, is Yes, moving to proof of stake massively reduces the energy footprint of uh, the Ethereum network. In many ways, that's somewhat of an unintended consequence. I, mean, I don't think it was not a factor, but it's certainly not the deciding factor technologically in making this transition. But in the court of public opinion, this has become a really big deal, that there's a whole bunch of people who have deep concerns about climate impact and climate change and are very concerned that the next economy might be massively more energy consuming than the current economy, which, by the way, already consumes a ton of energy. Um, and so uh, it is a very nice factor of proof of stake is the energy footprint of the network goes down by 99.95% or maybe more.
Um, and that's just a few of a little bit of what's going on with the transition. And then the, the thing is, is the merge is this transition, but it includes a whole bunch of other upgrades to the network, which are often overlooked, but are equally or not equally, but 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 as important in many ways than the transition, the consensus layer itself. So there's a lot happening right now, and it's just a few weeks away. It's an exciting time here in Ethereum land. It is, is very exciting. Too much? Exciting times, man. So I think a lot of people think about it like this. Okay. A lot of people are going, wow, we're going to this merge thing, but they have no idea what is happening, right? What is the easiest dumbed down way that you would say, hey, Ethereum's doing this. So people who don't understand and aren't technical, because we we're bad crypto over here, right? Let's be let's be honest. And let's so like, so what's the easiest way how you would say to under so people can understand what the hell's going on? Well, so you know. The merge should basically be transparent to end users. So th there will be very subtle differences that only if you're paying close attention, you might notice as an end user. And that's by design that that immediately before and immediately after the merge, everything should basically be the same. This is like upgrades of the plumbing, upgrades of the core Internet. Right. Hey, these two big Internet providers are now peering with each other. They weren't peering before. Do you know? No. Does it matter? No. But hey, in the future, your Internet might get faster or might get more secure um, as a result of this sort of deep in the weeds uh, um, uh, upgrade to the network. So first off, like for your average user, it shouldn't matter a whole lot. Um, second, uh, this is a, a major upgrade to the core infrastructure that positions us to, to drive a whole bunch of really important things moving forward, like massive improvements in scalability, significant reductions in um, uh, transaction fees, uh, making it easier for average people to participate in the network with consumer-grade hardware, etc. So in many ways, the merge itself will be transparent to end users, but over time, you'll go, wow, Ethereum's getting a lot better. It's getting a lot faster. It's getting easier to use. It's getting cheaper to use. Hey, I can now do new things. Now, actually, you know, instead of me paying money to use it, now it pays me to use it. That's super interesting. That didn't happen before. Mm. All of these are factors that are enabled by the merge and the transition of proof of stake and the other network upgrades that are happening in there. So uh, it, it won't be a sudden event that people notice, but, you know, in over the course of, of several quarters and several years, it will be like, damn, this thing's really humming along now. By the way, in much the same way that the early internet in the dial-up days was felt rickety and the entire internet would go down and you would try to dial in and get dial, you know, get busy signals. And it was just not a great thing. And now it's in our pocket 24 seven. And, and it feels like it's like, you know, a foregone conclusion, right? It took decades of engineering to make that possible. We're on that same journey now with Web3. Okay, so what are what are we going to see? Are we going to see lower gas fees? Because that's one of the biggest problems we've had, you know, trying to cram all of these transactions into blocks and everybody's trying to mint NFTs at the same time and gas has been ridiculous. So uh, the answer is no and yes. So know that at the, at the merge, there should be minimal impact on the gas marketplace. And the reason why is the merge upgrades the consensus layer, as in how the network agrees on, on what the truth is, but it does not uh, make any changes as it relates to scalability, which fundamentally is, is what impacts gas prices. So gas prices or transaction fees are a real-time marketplace. It's, it's everybody competing to get into the next block. And when there's a big NFT drop that everyone's trying to get into, or markets are moving really quickly and people want to move positions around, that competition, because there's not a lot of block space, gets really high. And so people bid up the price. Okay. Uh, the way to solve this, by the way, is to increase block space. Um, and the, the merge sets the stage for that to happen in, in various fashions, but at the merge itself, it will not change block space. So again, it's like, Hey, you know, let's the, the current target date of the merge is September 15th. Can I expect gas prices to go down on September 16th? No. What about September 16th, 2023? Yes. Okay, so with subsequent upgrades to the network that, yes, block space will be in increased and, and many of the throughput factors will be being addressed with subsequent upgrades that are dependent on the merge. So in many ways, and I like to talk about it, sort of it's foundational, it sort of sets the stage for all sorts of, of future upgrades to happen that wouldn't be possible without the merge and the transition of proof of stake. So, uh, again, like September 16th, if everything goes well, should feel a lot like September 14th. One change you might notice is today block times are variable. 
So the, the time between blocks might be a couple of seconds, might be 45 seconds. It's uh, it's probabilistic. It's averaging 13 and a half seconds. Post-merge blocks will occur every 12 seconds exactly. So, hey, you'll notice that you, you don't have to wait a long time for a block or there's not going to be sudden blocks. They just occur with, with like uh, military precision every 12 seconds. So that's something you'll notice. But for most people, that's going to be a relatively minor change in terms of how they engage with the network. So is there going to be a time where the miners of Ethereum are going to be upset because they're not making the kind of money they were before? And could that lead people to freak out a bit and maybe go towards Ethereum Classic? Because my my thought on this, uh, Matt, is <clears throat> the merge is going to be wildly successful and then ETH will be going up in price. Or the merge is going to not be successful and people would then flock to Ethereum Classic. What are your thoughts on that sort of paradigm? So today you have miners that secure the network through proof of stake. I mean, sorry, through proof of work. And to do so, they have a whole lot of specialized hardware. That hardware is expensive to, to own and operate and host. And once the merge happens, that hardware is not going to be very valuable. It's not going to have much of a job to do, at least as it relates to Ethereum. And so there's a, a lot of question as to if you're a miner who has a large investment in hardware, what are you going to do with that after the fact? Um, there are certain schools of thought which says they're going to they're going to switch their mining power over to uh, Ethereum Classic, ETC, which will remain a proof of work chain. Um, it would seem to me, at least from where I sit, uh, while that's probably constructive for ETC, it's, it's pretty hard to see you know, end users and protocols moving on mass. There, uh, it's kind of a chicken and egg problem, and and so uh, I haven't heard among any of the builders a, a really interesting appetite to go over there. But I think data would suggest that if the users move over there and the 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 um um you know tra trading volumes go up, that developers will follow. There's another interesting uh, theorem that's been talked about is that there'll be a hard fork where the miners will continue to operate the Ethereum proof of work chain. And, and you'll have the split where Ethereum will, uh, core will become Ethereum proof of work and Ethereum proof of stake. Um, I'm skeptical on this, uh, largely because of the stablecoin problem. So today you have stablecoins which are dollar backed. So you have USDC, for instance, where for every one USDC, you have a dollar in the bank. And at any point you can redeem you know, on a one for one basis. So what happens when you fork the chain and your one USDC becomes two USDC? You have one USDC on the proof of stake chain, and then you have another USDC on the proof of work chain. But there's only one dollar in a bank account somewhere that you can claim. And my guess is that, that the USDC operators, which are Circle and Coinbase, are going to respect the redemptions on the proof of stake chain and not respect any attempted re redemptions on the proof of work chain. So you're going to have a whole bunch of you know, billions of dollars of USDC on proof of work that are effectively valueless, have no nothing behind them. And these undergird a lot of the DeFi protocols and therefore things are going to start to get weird quick. So as much as it may seem, you know, intellectually compelling that there would be a, a persistent proof of work chain, practically speaking, particularly as it relates to DeFi, there's a bunch of unanswered questions. I'm not super deep in this regard, okay. um, but but I I believe that there'll be an orderly transition to the new proof of stake chain. Um, I think there may be some transition of hash power to things like ETC, but uh, how much is that going to matter in, in the end? You know, no one really knows, but it feels like it, it's probably not going to be a decisive factor. With that said, you know, there's plenty of room for interesting things or unexpected things to happen. And so as the merge gets closer there, you know, people will be watching quite closely for unexpected behavior, for uh, miners doing, you know, uh, uh, black hat type of things or, or weird things because they feel like they have nothing to lose because their, 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 their compute power is going to go to zero anyways. Um, I actually am optimistic on this. I think it's going to be a pretty orderly transition. I think it's going to work. I think the marketing, the market itself is is starting to realize that it's much more likely to be a smooth transition than a bumpy transition. But you know, uh, we're living through history, as they say. So we'll see what happens as as everything starts to to unfold moving forward. One of the uh, groups that I'm in for crypto linked an account here from a guy named Miles Suter. And I linked it to you guys in the chat here and the recording room so you could check it out as well. And and he makes the case that this merge is extremely dangerous for some of the reasons that um, that you mentioned, um, including that USDC basically decides which chain 
wins and which chain loses and all of this um introduces because of the the OFAC regulations um that base layer protocol censorship would be introduced on ethereum and like we're talking very centralized crypto which is not what ethereum was intended to be what are your thoughts on that so uh the it's always interesting so you got to realize the ethereum community came out of the bitcoin community right bitcoin was first and there was a constituency in Bit in the bitcoin community that wanted to be more technologically progressive um but ethereum core chose to pick a very technologically conservative approach in pursuit of the digital gold sort of narrative and we don't need to rehash all of that but that determination i think was a very successful determination for that community and as a result a community split out to build Ethereum, which was, you know, heavily technologically progressive. And I think Ethereum has proven itself as able to execute with making pretty significant changes and upgrades to its network and, and efforts to pursue sort of as, as scalable and capable a network to power the next economy as possible. This does not come without consequence. And so, yes, there are certainly, uh, as you pursue technologically progressive approaches, there are risks that come along with them. And I think those risks are being debated um, out there right now. And so, uh, you know, the Ethereum community historically has proven pretty resilient in the face of these things, has proven an ability to navigate this. And, you know, uh, the merge has been six months away for four years. And that's ah, been a, a criticism, right. um, which, has, which has been happening a long time. It's been interesting to see that narrative shift once it became three months away and then six weeks away. And now it's three weeks away. Right. And so either way, the merge is coming. OK. And and while there may be a whole lot of hand wringing that's happening uh, right now over it, it's coming in a hurry. And so all of these theoretical debates are about to get settled you know, really clearly. So, hey, there's some concern that the miners that hold a whole bunch of hash power are going to take some sort of negative action. That's a real concern. Okay. Now, these are not nameless, faceless entities. These are known entities that have been constructive members of the Ethereum ecosystem for a long time and have benefited greatly from it. By the way, they've known the mergers coming for a long time. Many of them are large ETH holders, and many of them are participating in staking and validation after the fact. So they're highly incented to have a orderly and secure network because they hold a lot of the underlying asset. Just saying, right? So there are very much countervailing forces in place um, that would ensure that some of these social actions that might get taken seem less likely to occur. Now, I'll be really clear. My crystal ball is as hazy as an next person. So I'm not inside any of these heads. I'm not a part of those conversations. But it would seem to be that that's not something that the core members of the Ethereum Foundation and the Ethereum ecosystem are really worried about. Okay. That's that one. Now, OFAC SDN is a different story altogether. Um, and that's somewhat of a, of a dark horse at the 11th hour comes in and introduces a whole bunch of questions. And that's being very actively debated right now, which is there's this very unusual designation of a piece of technology as OFAC SDN. Now, again, for, for those of your audience who are not already down this rabbit hole, OFAC is a, a, a part of the US Department of Treasury and it stands for the Office of Foreign Asset Control. And it's basically when the US issues sanctions on individuals, companies, or geographies like North Korea or Iran or now Russia post the Ukraine invasion, what actually happens is uh, people and entities get listed on the OFAC SDN list. SDN is uh, specifically designated nationals or specially designated nationals. And what it basically says is if you show up on that SDN list, that no U.S. corporation and no U.S. entity, and for all practical purposes, NATO as well, cannot do business with you. Okay. So, and that's when you go, oh, fact. We're exactly, exactly. <laughs> and 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 the thing about OFAC is the penalties for violations are severe. Each penalty can carry with it up to thirty million in liability and up to thirty years of jail time. And you can't claim, oh, I didn't know, oh, I wasn't aware. That's negligence, right? So there's a pretty a rich history of OFAC SDN enforcement. And therefore, US domiciled corporations, like any corporation you're aware of, have to treat this very seriously and have to ensure that they are not doing business either directly or indirectly with any individual or entity listed on OFAC SDN. Okay. That's fact of life. And any every corporation deals with it. By the way, big corporations have ex huge teams that do nothing but manage and deal with OFAC SDN and, and what to do with that. Now, what happened sort of unexpectedly was 
OFAC listed a series of smart contract addresses on the SDN list, specifically Tornado Cash. And this was a massive departure from how OFAC SDN has been used historically, and quite frankly, its legal mandate, where instead of being a person or, or entity set of people, it was a technology, okay? And, and that is a many in the Ethereum ecosystem and many in, in, in Web3 and crypto in general would argue a vast overreach, but it doesn't really matter at this point because this is the law of the land. And it says you can't do business with this smart contract, okay? Which is interesting because that creates all sorts of complexities and entanglements um, uh, for various classes of actors in the network. What's happening right now is there's a whole bunch of legal review and legal action, both trying to understand what does this mean for Ethereum as a whole? What does this mean for, for validators? By the way, what does it mean for miners right now? And, and just to be to be clear, OFAC SCN entanglement is not a new thing, that, that in fact, this has touched the Bitcoin community as well, that there have been miners who have, who have stated and then gone back on basically saying that they're not going to pay attention to uh, uh, transactions involving OFAC SDN controlled Bitcoin addresses. So as much as it may be easy to, to, to throw stones at, at this situation, this is something that impacts us all and that we should all be focused on and concerned about. Um, the concern, of course, is that by being a network participant, that suddenly you have some unexpected regulatory entanglement and some significant exposure as a result of that. Um, what I would say is particularly with you know, and there's some stuff underneath the covers with uh, the merge and the move to what's called proposer builder separation. There's a bunch of lines of abstraction here that I think will allow expressivity and creativity and and um, uh, choice in this world. And so if you're a validator who is really nervous about this, you'll be able to to make sure that you're compliant. And if you're a validator who who wants to ensure censorship resistant and is not in a geography where you have to worry about that, or quite frankly, your legal team decides that this is not a major concern, you don't have to worry about it. So um, it is a very real point of debate and issue. And this is not just a tempest in a teapot. This is material to the network. But again, it's material to all of crypto. It's not specific to the Ethereum and the merge. Material to the network. That's a great segue here because according to my research, there's over 4,000 ERC-20 tokens, right? There could be, I don't even know how many total, but I know there's over 4,000. I saw a number that's like 4,100 or something. And that's probably not even all of them because there's so many shit coins that aren't even tracked, right? So what about them? So there's so many ERC-20 tokens. Is it going to be noticeable to them? Are they going to need to upgrade their tokens as well, or should it just be seamless? No. So, by the way, there, there are vastly more than 4,000 ERC-20 tokens on the Ethereum network. Mm -hmm. um, there's millions, would be my guess. Um, and no, this is- Millions, millions of different uh, token IDs? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That that anyone can build a token anytime. I mean, there's there's classes- Millions yeah. seems a lot. I mean, I mean, CoinGecko shows like 13,000 and I'm just being safe on- Yeah, but you can- with value. Anybody can, you can go make one and now there's a token trap, like you, tons of oh, people- Oh, no, it's just, so easy to do. I mean, anybody can do that, but I mean, there's 13,000 that are tracked. I'm talking about ones that have inherent value. So, I mean, well, yeah, so, there's a lot of them out there. So, so again, you know, it's sort of like how many websites are out there? A yeah, lot. Seven. Right? They're like, 14. look at all this junk. There's all these junk websites. They're like, well, a lot of these are students who are just learning how to do this stuff. So they set up a web server and they set stuff mm -hmm. up. And they go, oh, the internet is garbage, right? Because all this junk that's out there, what they, what you really want is this really curated thing like AOL, where you have editors and you have you know uh, editorial and you have topics. And it's really this walled garden that people are going to navigate through. And it turns out that when you create an open programmable uh, a network that that people use it and they they do expressive things but the long tail is sort of not that material uh for the everyday user but it, it permits a whole bunch of creativity to emerge and then these massive new things show up that wouldn't be possible in a curated walled garden approach right so what is ethereum it's an open network anyone can produce a token at any time it's trustless permissionless borderless etc all of the above and people do and you can literally go on youtube right now and and google how to build how to create my own erc20 token in about 20 minutes you can do that really straightforward okay now 
the merge doesn't require any action on behalf of any of those actors. There's nothing you need to do if you are an existing wallet holder or your existing token operator, any of that stuff. The merge is transparent. And so the thing to realize is the merge is the combination of two existing chains. And that's what people don't really understand is that both chains are functional today. There is the existing Ethereum proof of work chain where all the balances are held that if you're an Ethereum holder or any ERC-20 holder, you have a balance on, on Ethereum proof of work. And then behind the scenes for well over a year now, there's been the beacon chain operating, which is the proof of stake chain. And these two things have been humming along in parallel just fine, hunky-dory. And what the merge represents is the combination of these two chains into a single chain. And to do so, there's some interesting factors. Is first, all the balances need to transfer onto the proof of stake chain. That's a pretty significant thing. So you go from basically an empty chain that's mining blocks that don't contain any transactions, don't have any balances, don't have any real history. And then suddenly all of that stuff is gonna move over. That's non-trivial to do technically. This is why we've been testing this for a long time through testnet merges. And then critically, the proof of work chain has to stop working. Because if you were to merge it over, but the proof of work chain would keep going, then you have all sorts of interesting problems because now there's two places to do stuff. And so these the merge represents the balances moving over and, and all the history moving over and the proof of work chain stopping working. And, and specifically how this happens is what's called um, TTD, total terminal difficulty. And there's this constant that gets applied to the network that will basically make it impossible to mine any further blocks past a certain point. It will become too computationally difficult to do so. so. This is why it's called terminal difficulty. And so anyways, that's technically how this is being achieved. And it is a uh, pretty massive project, a pretty massive change. And um, the, the, the Ethereum ecosystem has been testing this by moving test nets over and then doing what are called shadow forks, sort of repeatedly running this through among subsets of the network. So it's it's been very, very thoroughly tested. But again, it's... Um, it's uh, it's swapping out the engines while the plane is in flight. And that's a significant feat technologically. By no well, means the first time anything of this magnitude has been attempted before. The public internet has been upgraded many times. They went from not having SSL to having SSL. It went from HTTP uh, 1.0 to 2.0, right? There are all sorts of things in our day-to-day -day existence that networks upgrade underneath the covers and we're not even aware for it. There's a whole bunch of smart people who are responsible for ensuring that that happens in an orderly fashion. Sometimes there's hiccups and you might notice some, some blips in the network. But for the most part, you know, if you're not deep into telecom or you're not, you're not deep into something else, like you have no idea that, now, instead of using four sets of numbers, your computer uses six sets of numbers to understand what an IP address is. And that just happened. Massive upgrade to the network. Why did it happen? Because we're running out of IP addresses. Critical problem, right? Same thing, by the way, again, you know, Y2K bug, right? Massive issue under the covers, huge amount of concerns, happened in a pretty orderly fashion. There were some hiccups along the way. So uh, it is easy to get hyperbolic about these sorts of things. Um, and my sense is, Hey, these are engineers doing engineering things, and we're gonna we're gonna proceed with the with everything that we know. And some of the brightest minds in the ecosystem have determined that this is uh, a clear path forward. So we're gonna go forward with it. Let, let let's uh, let's play a game here, and I want you to think about the nightmare scenario. What is the worst thing that you could imagine happening in the you know the off chance that everything just goes belly up somehow what's it look like uh look at solana or or any of the other chains where they stop producing blocks you gotta shut her down well just when when a chain stops working things get weird kind of quick okay mm -hmm. hey has the sky fallen on solana a few times but it's still kind of i mean if you talk about sentiment worldwide about solana most people are at this point, they're aware of the DDoS attack. They're aware of the overspending thing. They're aware of it being down regularly. They look at Solana as more of a centralized chain more so than anything. So the reputation of Solana has certainly been tarnished. Well, so you say bad worst case scenario, certainly there's going to be a reputational hit. But at the end of the day, does Sol still have value? Not as yep. much, but about yep. a fourth of it. Yeah. Okay. So, so my, my point here is the nightmare scenario for any chain, Bitcoin, Ethereum, pick your favorite, is it stops producing blocks. Okay. Because things get weird and there are recovery mechanisms through that. Okay. 
Um, and so you get there are nightmare scenarios for for any network. There are susceptibility for any network and and methods of attack for any network. And so you know to me that's the biggest risk associated with any major network upgrade is we stop producing blocks. Now what does that mean? It means that so consensus can't be reached, right? That there's some factor where consensus stops working. Um, and you know the series of circumstances that that this may occur in. You know the 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 chain the the developers have worked incredibly hard to to identify every bug and track down everything and ensure that this transition will occur smoothly. And again, this is not the first time this has happened, and this is dozens and dozens of times this has been run through. Um, you know that that is probably you asked. That's the big nightmare scenario. And again, my from where I sit and what I've been observing as a by the way, someone who's heavily invested in the, the the vibrancy and health of Web3 in general. We at Block Native support multiple chains, not just Ethereum alone. Um, we're pretty confident that it's going to happen in an orderly fashion. If things go seriously sideways, it'll stop producing blocks. Uh, and then there'll be a recovery process to start insuring blocks. This would be a big deal. Yeah. This would be a reputational hit. Um, and this yet is it a big deal regardless. Like this is a, this is a pivoting pivotal moment in the crypto oh, world. This without is, any question. So it, it is a major event. And I have discussed publicly, like in many ways, the first block post merge is like a new Genesis block. It's like a new day with all sorts of new possibilities. It's not an empty chain. All the balances are going to come over, but, but it sets the stage for the next level of growth. And it, 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 I find it disappointing at, at that there are factions of the ecosystem that are rooting for it to fail because this will be net destructive for all of web three yeah. for I mean, all it's of impact web bitcoiners it'll impact everybody who has an ethereum coin so let's maybe uh, let's maybe ask about you know best case scenario because from what we hear it's going to be like a triple having right so yeah I, so, so people are saying that and it's a triple having that would indicate that over time the price of ethereum should go from 2500 2600 whatever it is now and have ourselves a nice force multiplier perhaps all-time highs 2500 what what planet are you on trail no i said no i, I it's 1500 right now but okay. i'm saying depending on what's going on i know okay. it's not it's around 1500 so there are so I, I gotta remember i'm a technologist not a trader so i do not make price predictions right the, uh, traders are going to trade prices are going to price we build yeah, yeah. um it would seem that the merge happening successfully would be highly constructive for the Ethereum ecosystem and everything dependent on it and logic holding true that therefore number go up, right? The triple halving is a specific reference to the rate of issuance. So with you know all blockchains, you have to incentivize miners or, or network participants to confirm new blocks. And how you do so is you issue new, um, uh, you know, net, net new, uh, assets, right? So for every Bitcoin block that gets mined, new Bitcoin gets materialized on a declining scale. And every so often that cuts in half. And this is why it's known as the habit, right? Under proof of stake, because you don't need specialized computers to mine anymore, and you don't need a lot of energy, that you need to incentivize folks a whole lot less. So the triple halving reflects to the massive reduction in new issuance of ether at each block, okay? So at the end of the day, today under proof of work with each block, a certain amount of ether gets generated. It's like one eighth, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, will be generated per block post merge. And so this is why it's known as a triple happening, which is just, it's it's a massive reduction in issuance to account for the massive reduction in compute power and energy that's necessary, okay? Now, I think in, in many regards, as you sort of look at the narrative that's out there, uh, Web3 has been encompassing of a whole bunch of different activities and a whole bunch of different groups. And with the merge, it's pretty clear that Ethereum is establishing itself as the foundation, as the center of that. And I know center is sort of a dangerous word to use here, but um, and that many alt L1s that have positioned themselves as Ethereum competitors or Ethereum killers are now positioning themselves as L2s as constructive to the Ethereum ecosystem, as adding value to the Ethereum ecosystem. And so I think we'll begin to see some uh, um, less scatter and more uh, focus of intellectual energy and more focus of innovation in the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, and I think many of the other chains are just realizing that, you know, 
there's just going to be very hard to compete with the amount of intellectual energy, the amount of engineering energy, the amount of academic research, which is now focused on the Ethereum chain specifically. And, and as we go forward and as a technologist, like just pay attention to where the nerds go. Okay. What is, uh, what does Vitalik think? I haven't really read his thoughts. So, on this. so I, I'm no, I'm no Vitalik whisperer, but the nice thing about Vitalik is he's quite prolific. And if you want to know what he thinks, you can read what he writes. You can watch his tweets and he does not hold back. He is. Well, I'm, I'm asking you tell, inform me. What does he, what is he saying? Oh, what is he saying about price? I don't know. Again, no, what is, what is he saying about the merge? What is he saying about the upgrade? Uh, again, he's a member of the Ethereum Foundation, and all everything's on track. That that it would probably are... be approving it, right? If it's like, let's go, it probably yeah. doesn't go without him saying, let's go. What about this? Let's let me ask this real quick. Um, so let's say I have some Ethereum because I do, because I'm a fan of it. I think Ethereum is going to be around five, 10, 20 years from now, probably. Um, what should people be thinking about doing now? Because if it's proof of stake, it would seem that we need to stake some of our Ethereum somewhere and to earn other Ethereum. And so what are the parameters around that and how does that work? So so I want to be clear. No one individual, Vitalik or, or otherwise, has any say on what happens or doesn't happen. The, it's community consensus. So by the way, like Ethereum is run by software, which is developed by independent software teams. And there are multiple implementations of the core Ethereum protocol. The community votes on choices of, of to make changes to the protocol. And then independent software teams, totally outside of any... Uh, control of the Ethereum of the Ethereum Foundation itself then chooses to implement that and then individuals and operators of the decentralized network choose to to uh, upgrade that so there is no one entity in the middle of all of this and there is massive client diversity on the Ethereum ecosystem which makes it highly distinct among all of crypto it is by far the most technologically converse uh, diverse ecosystem and, and that is super important to understand there's not one piece of code that if that has a bug and it affects the entire network Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, Travis's yes. question was, how do people stake? So, okay. So now what can you do, right? Uh, I always say the only rational strategy is long-term hold, whether you're a Bitcoin holder or whether you're an Ethereum holder. So that's step one. But step two, now you have in the Ethereum ecosystem, you have opportunity to earn permissionless yield, meaning you can stake your Ether, which means you participate in securing the network under proof of stake. And by being a part of all of that, you can then earn issuance and rewards from the network for doing so. So there is an APY that's associated with that, which is sort of core and intrinsic to the network. There are multiple ways to achieve that stake. The, the optimal way is to operate your own validator, um, run it on your own consumer grade laptop, uh, spend the time and energy to figure out how to do this. And you need a minimum, or you need 32 ETH per uh, staking node, um, which is a significant amount of ETH, a lot of money. It's worth noting that the original proposals for proof of stake were 1500 ETH per staking node. And there are proposals for further reducing that over, over time. But if you have 32 ETH, then the, the, a great thing to do both for yourself and for the network would be to operate your own staking node. And the good news about it is you should be able to do that at home with a computer you have laying around. You don't need anything big or weird or specialized to do so. Do you go to ethereum.org and, and they'll be like, this is how you do that? Yeah, there are many resources out there about you know how to set up your configuration, get it going. It's it's technologically sophisticated. I mean, it's it's not for you know MIT engineers. It's for hobbyists and things like that. But it's probably not for grandma. Okay, um, there are operators who offer you know you could buy a pre-configured system. You literally order it, it shows up, you plug it in, and uh, it starts working. But you know there's some some work to do with that. Um, what you can also do is what's called liquid staking. And so you can participate in a staking pool. These include Rocket Pool and Lido um, and others, of course, as well, where you basically pool your ether with others. Um, they then underneath the covers actually uh, have a whole series of validators or sort of staking pool um, sort of technology providers. So they're not they don't have a big data center full of Lido stakers. They basically are a marketplace where they take your stuff and they farm it out to others. So it, there is a degree of decentralization associated with that, but there is some centralizing forces there as well. Again, something that's been well debated and well discussed inside the ecosystem. But the key to all of this, this is all intrinsic to the network. So there's, there's no like loans here. There's no like um, unsecured risk or stuff like that. You maintain control over your, your assets and you get rewards as a result. Before anybody does that, it's a one-way street today. 
You can stake your ETH, you can earn your rewards, but you cannot withdraw, okay? Mm. And there is a future upgrade to the network which will enable staking pool withdrawals. Um, that is very much planned and on the roadmap, but it was determined to be something which does not have to be totally figured out at the merge. So the merge is moving forward without the ability to unstake your assets. Now, if you use Lido or Rocket Pool, what you get is a derivative. So you stake your ETH, you get something in return, which is supposed to trade and return in, in the same thing. So it does give you liquidity. There are caveats. And, and again, as we always say, DYOR, do your own research and NFA, not financial advice. But the good news about all of this is it makes these assets vastly more programmable vastly more fluid and flexible. And now new sorts of developer expressivity are enabled. So average people can suddenly earn, you know, significant APY on their ETH holdings. So you get to have your cake and eat it, eat it too. Maybe better, it maybe too. better than DeFi. Um, it's, it's sort of the underpinnings of DeFi. It's and like I think the new DeFi 2.0 kind of thing, right? It's it, And just so people know, 32 ETH is what it takes as a minimum to, for staking. That's about $52,000 right now. As an independent operator, yes. Yeah. But anyone with any fractional amount of ETH can participate in, in liquid staking in a staking pool. It's like oh, saying, nice. okay, okay. it's like as a stock shareholder, like I want to buy um, Berkshire Hathaway. Oh, well, each share is this big, massive thing. I don't have that much money. Well, you can buy a fractional share of Berkshire gotcha. Hathaway. Gotcha, okay, that makes sense. Or you could participate so in a- five, 10 ETH or even one ETH or a little bit of ETH, you can still participate. Exactly. And and what's nice about this, you know, it's, it's sort of a bit of a strained analogy, but, but the- ETH APY, the ETH issuance rate, sort of becomes like the Fed interest rate. It's like the baseline. Mm. And so no one's going to participate in a DeFi protocol that returns lower, lower rates than base ETH staking, which is very low risk in this model, right? Mm. And so it basically establishes a new floor for all of DeFi to use as a benchmark in terms of their relative degrees of performance. And so again, highly constructive for the ecosystem. And again, all of this is achieved with while preserving decentralization, massively reducing energy footprint and setting the stage for future upgrades to the network. So it's a, it is a pretty significant milestone in the evolution of the Ethereum network. And we would argue in all of Web3. You're, you're definitely a fan, but you missed a great pun opportunity. You should have your cake and eat it too. You're that totally would, right. I, that, I missed that. that. Would, I, I will. That agree. Be, um, you're not you know, bad enough, Matt. It's going to be interesting to revisit this afterwards. And I wish we had somebody that was really opposed to this to construct a, a healthy debate. I'm I'm Switzerland. I don't understand necessarily uh, like what this guy on Twitter is, you know, saying that the negatives could be, you know, time will tell if this becomes more centralized and is actually bad for holders or not. But for now, uh, this this is all the news. It's kind of a shame that it's happening in the midst of a bear market, uh, because I think uh, something like this has the potential to elevate the whole market. You know, and maybe really. it's the thing, Joel, that takes it out of the bear market. Though, agreed. Maybe, maybe. So, so I would say a few things. Is one um, that you know, price is going to price, but coders are going to code. Okay. And so, you know, the Ethereum ecosystem in particular is heads down coding and, and we don't pay too much attention to price. And, and to be honest, it doesn't really impact what we do one way or the other. We're not doing things because we think the number will go up. We're doing things because we think it's necessary for the foundation of the next economy. One. Two, we're going to know this in a matter of a few short weeks. And so I think it will be incredibly interesting to see how this plays out, uh, both in the immediate term and in the long term. So hey, one of the fundamental rules of investing is there's no return without risk, okay? And if you're being promised a return and there's no risk, then you're being lied to that the risk is hidden because there's just no way to do it. Uh, Ethereum is on a path of te technological progressivism in order to pursue sort of the enablement of the next economy. That carries with it risk. Nobody should be surprised by it. There is no question that moving technology forward, whether it be your iPhone, whether it be your laptop, whether it be your Amazon purchase, whether it be the internet, is risk a risk-free exercise. Ask anyone launching rockets. Watch anyone. Ask anyone insuring satellites. Watch anyone trying to build a self-driving car. There are intrinsic risks in technological progressivism, and that is part of the bargain that you make. Now, you could argue, oh, the risks are too high. We shouldn't have self-driving cars. The risks are too high. We shouldn't put satellites into space, right? And by the way, that is a perfectly legitimate debate to have, right? There are absolutely arguments, pros and cons, which have been played out over the course of time. 
And yet, and yet, technology would seem to be an inexorable force that every day it gets a little bit faster. It gets a little bit cheaper, gets a little bit more capable. And it just grinds away, grinds away minute by minute. Your iPhone is getting smaller. Your iPhone is getting faster. Your iPhone battery is lasting longer. It's getting higher resolution, right? And it may feel to me and you like there are these step jumps. Every year a new iPhone comes up, but underneath the covers, there's millions and millions of people who are clicking that machine forward inexorably, okay? And the same is happening in Web3 and it's manifesting in the Ethereum ecosystem. So you wanna witness this? You are witnessing history right now. It's incredibly exciting. It's not without risk, right? Um, and yet we're proceeding forward. And yes, I'm absolutely bullish on, on this approach, but, but I'm bullish about technology. My whole life and my whole history has been this way. And, and if you are a beneficiary of technology, like literally you use eyeglasses, you take medications, you, you, you drive a car, you too have been a beneficiary here, and, and I would encourage you to try to take an optimistic outlook and see the possibilities in spite of the risks which are intrinsic in it. And I'm this sorry, is where Matt Orlando. pulls back his, his uh, outfit, opens it up in a big glowing ethereum. Ah. Hey, we uh, Matt, I appreciate your optimism, and sure. uh, I hope to share that with you and as our audience does as well we got to wrap it up but thank you so much for for coming on today and, and sharing all the mergy goodness with us and uh you know maybe in a year we'll circle back um just like you know uh and find out where are we now I would love to. I welcome the opportunity. I appreciate being here. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at M Cutler, first initial last name. And Block Native is blocknative.com and at Block Native. And um, we provide a whole bunch of cool free tools to have visibility in the pre-chain layer. We provide a mempool explorer that lets you see what's going on in the Ethereum ecosystem in real time. And uh, very much encourage your listeners to check it out if they're active participants in Web3. And again, appreciate the opportunity to share my point of view. So I, I have no idea what he said because we, we actually, in the sequence of this show, you guys just heard the interview, but we haven't actually interviewed him yet in real time. We're interviewing him as soon as we're done recording these bookends for the show. So I don't know what he said. I hope it was good. Very rarely. We've never done, very rarely will we ever do this where we do the bookends for a show before uh, interviewing the person. I may be getting on uh, so a this plane. this is new. Yeah, I, I but I, I have uh, I would say this Matt had a lot of words. He did. He said words, and then we asked questions. He said more words, and then you stay bad. Yeah, or, or unless he didn't show up for the interview, in which case if he, he didn't shows. show up for the interview, then this is awkward. Then we're just gonna save this for later. It's just bookends. That's so you don't even know what it is or what it is or when or what. So I gotta tell you, uh, here just for a little extra banter, I bought some golf clubs. Okay. Did and uh, because I live on a golf course, I've you know I've been here since a year ago, April, and I golfed for a few months uh, about 25, 30 years ago, and never could hit the ball. It was just yeah. I hated, I hated it. Are you but good now? A, Can you hit the ball a, now? No, I still can't hit the ball. Like I can't drive, but I'm hanging out with some really cool people, and it's fun, you know, to go out with my buddies. But I got to say, yesterday. I went out and I know we're on some 450 yard hole, which is just, you know, ridiculous to me because it takes me, you know, 12 strokes to get it down into the, the cup. And I landed in a sand trap um, about 27 yards from the hole. And how, and how do you know that? Is there like an app that's like, you just kind of walk it off, you know, one okay. stride is about a yard. Um, okay. You just kind of walk it off. And anyway, my buddy, uh, Sean is, is there and he's, he's on the green and I go ahead and pull my pitching wedge out. It was perfect. Travis, it was perfect. It came out of the sand trap and just rolled right into the hole. I was like, Oh, that's Did it. Anybody I, video that? Somebody it wasn't videoed, video that. but he saw it and we had proof. Cause I'm like, where's the ball? Where's the ball? It's in the hole. Oh, oh it nice. It's in the hole. Good. You and, know, I would love golf if <clears throat> they had uh, some sort of RFID chip or some sort of chip in the ball that can tell me where the hell the ball is. Because if not, I lose way too many. I'm like, you know what? I've actually not played golf since I've gotten LASIK. Before I had LASIK, it was very difficult for me to see where the ball was. So I bet I, I mean, I know I can crunch the ball pretty good at that top shot thing. I can do pretty decent at that. So I bet, I bet that since my eyes is, my eyes are better. And this, and actually the way that they did my eyes with LASIK is because I'm, I was over the age of 40 is 
this, my left eye is for reading things up close. My right eye is for seeing things at a far distance. So I, and then whenever I'm driving, it just basically blends them in. So now I have blended vision, but oh my goodness, <clears throat> I can see really far away with this eye and I can't read anything with the same eye. Well, you should just, and come I can out read here. great with this eye, but I can't see anything with that. So it's, just it's come just, on out here and play with us one day. I'll let you know when we're going, you come on up here and I, probably, I really ought to get some, um, I really ought to get measured for some clubs because then I can go buy some off of Amazon, but it's like, I'm six foot, but my torso is a little bit taller than my so i don't know if there's i i need to i need to get fit for some you could probably borrow a, a set here that would not be a problem anyway we digress i just wanted to humble brag about my awesome shot from a crappy golfer because i am i'm bad i am i am so bad you know you get better at stuff doing, keep it. doing it you keep doing yeah. it yeah. So you're going to say how like a crappy golfer you are, but eventually you're going to be like, oh my God, I'm an amazing golfer. Yeah, I'll be okay. I enjoy playing pickleball more. Pickleball is yeah. great. Okay. Yep. You know why? It's a great walk. It's a great walk until you lose too many balls. And if you lose too many balls, you're like, fuck this golf. Walk? Carts, dude. Oh, golf carts. Now. Yeah, <laughs> you walk. You don't walk the course anymore. We got technology. We got motors. Well, that's the part of golf that's the good, healthy part is the walking. Yeah. I like the riding in the cart. And my, the guys I go with, like drinking the beer and smoking the ganj. So well, you fit right in. Kind of people. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the show. And we appreciate you as always. We'd love to hear your feedback. Bad crypto podcast at gmail.com is. I would say this before we wrap it up, though. It's like, tell us what you think is going to happen with this ETH emergency. Yeah. Right. Tell Tweet us. us. I'm curious what you think, because I have some ideas and we talked about them during this interview that we haven't done yet. And uh, but I do have ideas. I mean, I was I'm like, if the merge is successful, then ETH's going to blow up. If the merge is not successful, then Ethereum Classic will probably blow up. Mm. So I don't know. So I mean, which one is it going to be? And then I was watching. I was watching this one YouTuber guy. His name's Cosa Verdes, and he's pretty accurate about all kinds of things. And he he said, uh, I, I've seen him be accurate more often than I've seen anybody be accurate. And then I actually turned my brother-in-law on to him and he watches him and then lets me know what he's saying. And he says, he says this, crypto is about to do a massive tank and the smart people are putting their money in Tether or USDC right now because it's about to go babloosh. So I don't know, he's been accurate pretty consistently. And that's not financial advice at all. I'm just telling you, do some research out there See what's going on because crypto might be on for that roller coaster thing. The only advice that we can give you with 100% assurance and not be sued is to stay back. Crypto Podcast is a production of Bad Crypto LLC. The content of the show, the videos, and the website is provided for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice of any kind. You shouldn't make any decisions as to finances, investing, trading, or anything else based on this information without undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional financial advisor. Please understand that the trading of bitcoins and alternative cryptocurrencies have potential risks involved. Anyone wishing to invest in any of the currencies or tokens mentioned on this podcast should first seek their own independent professional financial advisor.